the title this morning of the message is What is a Man of God? Now, obviously, we're talking to men, we're talking not just fathers, but really the principles apply uh, to everyone, okay? Whether you're a dad or future dad or woman, so these principles are true, but we're going to specifically zero in on talking about what is a man of God. What did the Apostle Paul counsel to his son in the faith, Timothy, concerning what it is to be a man, his encouragement to be a man of God? And so as we consider what a, what, how to act as a man, and of course as a father, to be an example, guys, those of you that are dads, grandparents, uncles, all right, uh, maybe you have influence around other kids, teenagers, children. So take these and apply them. Uh, Your kids may have been grown up, are grown up now and gone, but you still have an influence in their life. And this morning I want to direct your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 6. And I'm going to read it a little more uh, just for context sake. Paul is giving his counsel to his son in the faith. And we're going to pick it up at verse 6. Paul writes, the Word of God reads, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, this false knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So number one this morning, notice with me, is the man of God must be discerning. The man of God must be discerning. Verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, Flee, abandon these things. Flee. Now, in the context, the word flee, he's, he's just, that's why I read it a little bit above. Abandon, flee those who are false teachers, those who are peddling false ideas. Listen, there's a time when you run and it's cowardice. You're a coward. But then there's a time to run. Remember how Joseph... In that moment of temptation, he fled, he ran, he got out of the situation. Listen, to quote one of the great sages of our culture by the name of Kenny Rogers. 
He gave some great advice. You've got to know when to hold them. You've got to know when to fold them. You've got to know when to walk away, and you've got to know when it's time to what? To run. Now, the Greek word there for flee really doesn't refer necessarily to running per se. It has to do with to be discerning that you separate yourself, listen, that you separate yourself from influences that are going to mess with your thinking, mess with your mind. They're influences that bring a contrary opinion than what the Word of God says. Uh, Paul referred to them back in verse 5 of chapter 6 as people who have a uh, depraved mind and are deprived of the truth. And so we men, we live in a culture in which we are bombarded, just like women, everybody, we're bombarded with ideas and thinking and the processes of how to view our life and our families. And listen, again, this isn't, this isn't having anything to do with political, but listen, the world is right now in high gear and absolutely redefining not only what a man and a woman is, but what the very family is that God originated. What do we need? We're not talking about electing the right people. That's part of it. But listen, the culture can never depend upon elected officials. You know what we need? We need a church filled with men that are willing to stand and be discerning and say this is true and this is false. We need to be discerning. The principle that Paul is reiterating when he says, O man of God, flee these things. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.14 from the New Living Translation, again, I just love the way that words things. He says, don't team up. This is that scripture that uh, you may be familiar with in the King James, don't be unequally yoked. But he says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? Men, you need to be discerning. He's not saying, and, and again, 2 Corinthians six seventeen says, therefore come out from among unbelievers. Again, he's talking about that separation and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Be discerning. He's not saying abandon your responsibility to be light and darkness. He's not saying to, that you're, to go off and you know, live in some uh, remote part of Montana and make your own water and homeschool your kids and, and withdraw from society, right? He's not saying that. He's not saying that. He's saying be careful about who you allow through your gate, through your door that will influence your thinking and your mind. The last thing I did last night before I went to bed, guess what? I checked the locks on my doors. You need to check the locks on your doors of your mind, men, and what you're allowing, not only through your life, but what you're allowing in all those cable channels or streaming channels that you, that you have that you think, oh, that's only $6 a month. Next thing you know, you're paying 80 bucks for a bunch of channels you don't watch. And guess what? All of that stuff, we would never, ever want our children and families to be exposed to, guess what? We just have the sewage pouring in, unfiltered. Men, come on guys, be discerning and say, no, we don't need that. We don't need that. We need to be discerning in how 
we live and how we act. Discernment, we've talked about it before, but discernment literally means to cut it straight. Cut it straight. You ever, again, talking about politicians, you ever listen to somebody running for office and they can talk uh, for, you know, two minutes and you're like, what in the world did they just say? Just say yes, no, you know. I mean, just make it plain. Discernment cuts it straight. Here's a definition real quick. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, it's the ability to think with discernment is synonymous, synonymous with the ability to think biblically. Here's a scripture, 1 Timothy 5, 21 and 22. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see, the key to living a life that is uncompromising is to have one's ability to discern what is true and not true in every area of your life. Unfortunately, discernment is an area where Christian men often falter. Men, if we do not take this seriously, this seriousness of being discerning, to flee, to abandon, that when we measure it up against what does Scripture teach, what is the authority of God's Word, how does that measure, how does that help me cut it straight? Listen, sometimes we waver because over time we become influenced by the culture and things that we would have never thought or considered five, ten years ago. Now we were saying, well, you know, hey, maybe it's not that bad. Everybody can't be. And all of a sudden now we're saying, wait a minute. Did What was the serpent's modus operandi in the garden? Did God really Really say, really? Come on, Eve. Really? He said that? Right? Has that changed? No. He's always trying to do what? Undermine. Knock the word of God down. Just a little lower. We must be discerning. Secondly, actually, look at, and this is the key. Let me not miss this. Second Peter 1 3. How do, how do we do this? Second Peter, Apostle Peter helps us. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him. How will you grow in discernment? You need to know God. You need to be familiar with His Word, familiar with His ways. You need to know Him. How has He granted all these things to live life and godliness? Through the knowledge of Him. Men, if you are not putting yourself into the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to mold and shape your thinking by Scripture, by thinking biblically on issues and events and the way you live your life, the way you uh, uh, manage your family, your household, the way you work, if you're not allowing the Word of God to be that which molds and shapes you, uh, through the knowledge of Him, our brain, God works through minds. God gave us a mind. When you became a Christian, He didn't say, okay, leave your brains at the door. No, He created us as thinking people. And so through the knowledge of Him is how we honor God and be discerning. Notice, secondly, the man of God must be 
determined. He must be discerning, but secondly, he must be determined. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. But he says, uh, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. There's the discernment. And then he says to be determined, pursue righteousness. Pursue. That word pursue is a determined, active determination that I'm not going to be passive. Hello? I'm not going to be passive, but I'm going to pursue. There's going to be a godly determination for me to be a man after God. And the Greek word there, you know the New Testament was written in the original language Greek, so that's sometimes why we talk about a Greek word. It helps us, and sometimes the translation isn't always equal in the way (coughs) it's brought over into the English, but the Greek word that's translated pursue or follow, maybe your version says follow, it means this, it means to run after, to run swiftly after, to hotly pursue, to be eager, to seek. It's a passion. It isn't just some passive thing. It means that we are to be active in pursuing a determination that this is a priority. This is important to my life. That's why I'm discerning, and I want to be determined. And notice the six qualities there that is just in verse 11. And each one of these we could break down and spend time on. But the word righteousness, that has to do with personal integrity. Godliness has to do with just the practicality and how we conduct our lives. Is our lives marked by godly character? Faith is better for faithfulness. There's faithfulness. Love, that's the word in the Greek, agape, which speaks about a sacrificial love, a love that expects nothing in return. That's the kind of love. Patience, that's the idea of endurance, a stick to it, and that's when things get hard, when things get tough. Gentleness, that's meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was meek, but he was anything but weak. Meekness is this, and this is important, meekness has been defined as power under control. We need some meek men, not weak men. We need some meekness. We need some meekness in our political candidates, right? We need some humility. Humility is a key and goes a long way. What is he saying? He said, look, pursue these things. These things are not found in a little bottle at CVS and you pop it like like Flintstone vitamins. You've got to actively pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love. That takes effort. It takes work. You're not working for salvation, but you're working because we are His workmanship. And so the question is, am I demonstrating these things in my own life? Are these qualities, are these, um, you know, the Bible talks about spiritual fruit. And I know there's fruity Christians. I'm not talking about that. I don't know about spiritual fruit. It uses, because fruit is not manufactured. It has to be grown, right? And look what he says in uh, Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, you could just say it this way. The evidence of the Holy Spirit and the man of God is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, verse 23, gentleness, 
being a gentle man, self-control, hello men, against such there is no law. What does he mean against such there is no law? Against such there's no way you can manufacture these things by just willpower and positive thinking. How are these things evidence? They are grown because of the cultivation of the Spirit of God in your life. Spirit of God changing desires and affections. You see, godly men are called to be spiritual men. Paul would go on to say in Galatians 5, or actually he would say previously, he he gave this counsel. He said, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you keep from the desires of the flesh, the, the lust, the the influx of a pornographic culture. How do you do that, guys? You're walking, you're cultivating the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then you will not desire. Why? Because you're feeding more on the goodness and holiness of God than the garbage and the sewage of the culture. Walk by the Spirit. (coughs) And you will not gratify It doesn't say you're going to avoid temptation. It just says you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh, that's sin, are what? They're against the Spirit. You can't be a spiritual man and dallying and and getting involved in things that are contrary. For the desires, the, the flesh, the sinfulness that remains in the believer's life are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. The reason you sometimes men struggle with progress in your own spiritual life is because you're, living, you're trying to live in two different worlds. You're trying to satisfy one master and satisfy another master. And what did Jesus say about trying to serve two masters? Can't do it. Can't do it. Then he says, verse 25, in the New Living Translation, uh, maybe I didn't put the NLT. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The New Living Translation says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also, or says the same thing, sorry, uh, uh, I thought I had, there it is. Since we are living by the Spirit, same verse, just different translation. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Keep in step with the Spirit. You're not getting ahead, you're not lagging behind, but you're keeping in step with the work of the Spirit, all right? The man of God must be discerning, he must be determined, but there's a third admonition here in verse 12, and the man of God must be defending, defending. What is verse 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. The only good fight is the one you win, guys, right? Now, we won't take a pole or hands of how many men, hopefully it was a long time ago that you got in a fight, your last fight. Some of you remember some of your fights, right? I remember fourth grade, John Dubois. I'll never forget that kid. Red hair, freckles. And I, you know, for whatever reason, he was one of those kids that kids, you know, kids can be really cruel, right? Right? Even sometimes your own kid, you want to just lock them up until they're, you know, 21 or whatever. And for whatever reason, I was messing with him out on the playground. And he just had his fill of Tim Campbell. And out of nowhere, 
he took his fist and it felt like he literally rammed it through my head. And of course, you know, as a cool guy, you know, even though I had been literally like I had a baseball bat slammed on my head, you know, you're, and you know when you get to your head, you know, or something knocks your nose and your eyes start watering, you're like, I'm not crying, I'm not crying. <laughs> now guys, you know this is true. What do you think the relationship between me and John Dubois happened after that? Became good friends. Guys do stuff like, isn't that crazy, right? Well, listen, we're not talking about getting in a fight physically, all right? We're talking about defending and fighting. Men can understand that we're to take up arms in, spiritually and fight the good fight. And it's the good fight of the faith. And the English word really could be used for fighting, to keep on fighting. That's literally what the language would have us understand is not just fight, but keep on fighting. And the English word agonize more closely resembles the Greek word there. So when he says fight the good fight of the faith, he says agonize. Agonize in laboring as an athlete or as a soldier. Some of you that are athletes and soldiers, you knew that a lot of your training involved pure agony. But it was part of your training, right? He says, agonize, contend, fight. You must be ready at all times. And listen, the nature of the Christian life, men and women, is there will never be a cease fire until Jesus returns and puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and sets up his kingdom forever. There will never be a ceasefire. We're in a battle. And the Bible uses lots of pictures that speak of this battle. It's not your in-laws and outlaws. It's a spiritual battle. Look at Ephesians 6. Familiar. Finally, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul concludes the letter of Ephesians, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And he gives the picture of that was very familiar to folks in this culture that were very aware of the Roman soldiers that dominated their cities and culture. And he gives this illustration, put on the full armor of God. Again, he's not talking about physical, but he's using that as a word picture. <clears throat> put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, your version might say the wiles of the devil. And then he conditions and reminds us, for we do not wrestle, we do not fight, we do not agonize against flesh and blood. It's not your boss, it's not your in-laws, it's not your neighbor. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against what? There's a spiritual reality. We talked about the spiritual reality a little bit last week. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul would conclude 2 Timothy 4 in his life. He said, I have fought the good fight. I've agonized. I've done battle. I've defended. Men, we are not talking about being contentious. But hear me. 
And I alluded to this earlier. We're talking about, we are talking about men to have convictions and they're willing to fight for those convictions. I want to see some people in our culture, some leaders, men and women, that have some convictions about things that are right and things that are wrong and are fearful to act and speak on those convictions. We live in the day that Isaiah said about his own day, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where evil is good and good is evil. Am I right? That's just like Isaiah 5.20. That was a picture of his day. This isn't new. Good is evil and evil is good. And we celebrate it. And we've gone from celebrating it, now we want to indoctrinate the next generations. See? Just celebrating intoleration is never enough. Sin is like a, is a spiritual cancer. It never is content to be dormant See, it's always looking to take more and more and more. So what was tolerant 50 years ago? Now they want to indoctrinate. And parents, they will throw you in jail. That's what some people are actually advocating and thinking. In Europe, some of that's already going on. Canada. You don't know any about this. You better wake up. Find out what's going on in your culture and in your world. I'm not talking about conspiracy theories. I'm talking about just... The culture, why? The Bible, do you realize the Bible, none of this catches the word of God by surprise? Because the Bible says that in the end times, and I don't know where in the end times or not. I know I'm, we're, a little fur, we're a little closer than we were 2,000 years ago, right? But the culture, the world, as it moves towards the end of the age, will do what? Will grow more wicked and more evil. And so we need men, men who are willing to defend. Why are they willing to defend? I'm not saying defend your preferences. I'm saying convictions that are rock solid scriptural word of God. But we live in that culture where there's neither right or wrong, where people talk about, well, this is my truth. How many of you heard that before? Well, my truth. Say that when you go into Lowe's and you want to measure for a window. He says, well, well what, what size is your window? Well, my truth is it's an 8 by 5. Well, we don't have that size. Well, that's my truth. That's how I measure it because I don't limit myself to 12 inches per, per foot. I have a 15-inch foot ruler. I have my own truth. I have my own way of measuring life. Do you see what I'm saying? The absurdity? Well, there's good people on all sides. Oh, they may be in error, but you know, they're such nice people. I want to be known more for what I'm for, not what I'm against. Men, the cultural air that we breathe is compromise and to degrade the authority of the Word of God day in and day out. Men, we must be men who stand on convictions. But you know what? <laughs> if we have no discernment, then how in the world are we going to know what's right or wrong? Paul said in Jude, or not Paul, the writer, yeah, Paul and Jude, or no, Jude said, sorry. 
in Jude 3, there's only one chapter, he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to, to the saints. Men need to have biblical convictions and have the courage to act on those convictions. Let me tell you about somebody in history who acted on biblical convictions. Some of you know that today is not just Father's Day, but it's also Juneteenth Day. Now, some of you, many of us white folks, aren't as familiar with Juneteenth. I'm just being real with you, right? But you know what Juneteenth is? It's a celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation that was signed originally in 1863 by Abraham Lincoln, but Juneteenth came out as a result of the, uh, in June 19th, 1865, when Union troops went to Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation because Texas became a haven for slave owners because they were somewhat far away, and they went there to Galveston, Texas in particular, and said, you will comply and as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, some four million African Americans received full citizenship. Now, we know our history has been uh, very inconsistent in America and has not been consistent uh, with the application of, the, of seeing those freedoms. But go back even before that, and some of you may have never heard of a man by the name of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce lived in England during the height of the British slave trade in the late 1700s, and he became a member of Parliament, their Congress, at the age of 21. After reconnecting with his Christian faith in his early 20s, Wilberforce committed his life to a higher calling, the pursuit of ending the British slave trade. Although he considered leaving public service for the ministry, he ultimately decided to stay in Parliament where he could advocate for the abolition of the slave trade. Wilberforce knew that his crusade to end the slave trade would be wildly unpopular. But this reality did not deter him. Even in the midst of physical beatings, assassination threats, public slander, Wilberforce stayed focused on living out his values and fulfilling his purpose. Wilberforce did not just talk about ending the slave trade, he took direct action to end it. He used his position in Parliament and influence to introduce legislation, bills into Parliament time and time again throughout the 1790s, even though many of them, and most of all of them, were not passed and turned down. And although he was not seeing the results he desired, Wilberforce was disciplined enough to act with conviction and continue to pursue his goals. He had the courage to persevere in the midst of adversity. Wilberforce never gave up. He stayed the course. He put forth legislative bills one after another. He influenced public opinion about the issue of slavery, continually making the case to abolish it. Finally, in 1807, his 20-year quest came to reality in the House of Commons in Britain voted to end the slave trade. Wilberforce wept at the realization of this dream coming true before his own very eyes. In 1833, three days before his death, 
three days before his death, all slaves throughout the British Empire, and you know, they said the sun never set on the British Empire, from India, Australia, I mean, the Brits basically ruled the world. They ended all and freed all slaves in the British Empire, a fitting end to his life. Why? Because he acted with conviction. And what's sad is that it would take the United States 30 whole years to catch up and do the same in 1863. Why? Because somebody had convictions. Somebody had a conviction to say this is wrong. Not just wrong, this is evil. We are all created in the image of God. Nobody has a right to enslave anybody. It's evil. It's wicked. Man of God, be a person who is willing to defend truth because you are men who have convictions about what is right and what is true. And you know what? It might just be something as simple as steering your children and grandchildren through the cultural mess that they come home with and they bring to your doorstep. You know what? It might be moms and dads standing in a city council or in a public school setting and saying, no, this, this is, we don't agree with this. We're going we're gonna to stand for truth in what this is. It might be voicing your opinion in church when you might be a part of a church that's wanting to go south and teach and advocate something that God's Word forbids. I'm not, I'm not talking about preferences. I'm talking about things that are clearly delineated and say, these are convictions. This is a hill I will die on. I'm not willing to die for just anything. But there's some things that are, that are worth taking a stand. And sadly, who do you see in the forefront? You see a lot of moms, women. Where are the men? Where are the men with guts? that are willing to stand. Well, you know, my boss sees me, my job. You not think God can give you another job? You see, Daniel, remember Daniel? He's a great inspiration. He was told, Daniel, we passed a law that's going to forbid you from praying to your God. You know what Daniel did? Turned right around, opened the window so everybody could see him. He went back and did what he'd been doing. Got on his knees and started praying to Yahweh. He didn't care. Why? Because he feared God more than man. We need men that fear God. The fear of God more than the fear of man. Discerning, determined, defending. And there's a fourth, last principle. Dependable. Dependable. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy. You could just hear Paul. Oh, Timothy. Guard, guard, protect the deposit entrusted to you. Man of God, Paul is saying to be dependable, be faithful, guard what has been entrusted to you. Men, you have been given that you're dads. I don't care if your kids are grown up, you're always a dad. Grandparents, you have that influence. It might be, uh, well, I won't say. See what Paul is saying to Timothy. 
He's saying, Timothy, be faithful to what was given to you. Guard the deposit. Be dependable. Guys, sometimes we are not dependable. Just in life in general. Oh, I'll be there at 9 o'clock. Yeah, we're going to help. We're going to help. We're going to help clean out that shed. I'll be there. Yeah, something came up. Well, true, maybe. Are you dependable on your job? Do you clock in on time? Are you the first one to leave? Are you somebody that say, you know, I don't know what's with that guy, but man, he's really dependable. I want to know what, what motivates him. He's faithful. I can depend on him. But you know, God not just calls us for dependability in just our character in general, but a dependability that God can depend on you dads to pass down godly values and truth to your household, to your children, to guide your family, your wife, to avoid. And look at verse 20. Don't miss this. He's saying, don't be distracted. You can't guard something that's been entrusted to you if you're distracted. How are we distracted? Look what he says in verse 20 and 21. Avoid the irreverent. That's a godlessness. Babble. I guess if he was writing today, he would say social media. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved. I like that word swerved. You ever be driving somewhere and you're messing with something you're not supposed to mess with in your car? And you look up and what do you do? You swerve. Who have swerved. Why? Because their eyes, guys, listen, their eyes were not on the road. You cannot be any of these values if you're distracted. And he says, avoid the distraction. You know, I found that there's a lot of things that are interesting and entertaining to watch and listen to. But you know what? They add no value to my life. Some of us have hit a certain age where all of a sudden the goalpost is getting a little clearer. We've lived more life than we have in front of us. And we're cognizant on the time that we have wasted on irreverent babble and nonsense. And say, God, help me. Help me to be dependable as someone that guards the truth. Guards and watches over my family. Because if not, it's so easy to wonder and swerve from the truth. Paul asked the church in Galatia, in Galatians 5, because they had swerved from the truth, if you know what was going on there. The New Living Translation says, you were running the race so well. You were running the race so well. You're doing so good. Who has held you back from following the truth? That's a good question, Dad. It certainly isn't God, for He is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Those of you, the ladies and maybe men that bake, you know, you, don't, you just need a little bit. And guess what? It all spreads. There's a little bit of falsehood. 
right? How much strychnine poison do you need to have in a, in a gallon of water to kill somebody? Just a little bit. Rat poison. Most of it's edible food. It's just that little, whatever, 10% that'll, right? That'll do it to you. You see, the, the deception of the enemy, man, isn't just coming to you in waves upon waves. You know where the deception is? It's in just little drips and drabs. That over time, like the coast of a shoreline, that they can look back 100 years, 200 years, and look at photos and see how the shoreline through beach erosion has gotten worse and worse and worse over time. Sometimes men wake up into situations. They wake up and realize that their life is falling apart, their families are falling apart. They wake up in a, in, in a, in a gulf and in in drowning in an immoral situation that is affecting their family, and they say, how did I get here? Well, you didn't get here overnight. It was just little by little by little by little by little compromises I call it running the red lights. Sooner or later, you're going to run a red light and you won't go through that intersection. God says, be dependable. What have we said? Look at these review. We just, this, he says, we are... Man, I want to encourage you this morning. I encourage myself. I have to live with this Days before you ever hear it from me. I want to encourage you this morning. Hold dearly. And be a man of God. We are to flee from false teachers. False doctrine. That's things that are influencing us. To live ungodly lives. We are to follow. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight. Stand for the faith. Be men that have convictions. Aren't tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Scripture says. And we were to be faithful, dependable to the truth of the Word of God. Guys, we are in a marathon race. This is not a sprint. This is the long race. This is the long haul. But you know what the good news is? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, surrounded by a William Wilberforce, a Martin Luther, a John Wycliffe, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, men who are willing to stand because of truth. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, those things that, and sin which clings so closely. When you see a marathon runner, you don't see him out there with a backpack with, with uh, you know, weights around his legs. No. He's made it to where he has nothing to hinder him from running the race, and perhaps it comes down to just that nanosecond to be the winner. Guys, we need to have that kind of focus. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But you know what the good news, guys, is? Don't miss this. You know what's at the end of the race? Look at the next verse, Jesus. Guys, here it is, looking to Jesus. Men, look to Jesus. Men, look to Jesus. Dads, grandparents, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith, of our faith, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Here's the good news, guys. The gospel is the good news because dads live with a lot of guilt. For we feel we fell short. We could have, we should have, we sh- you know. And we think, boy, guys, are you sometimes like me? You think, I wish I could know what I know now and go back and start over with what I know now. But life doesn't work that way, does it? But guys, look to Jesus. Why do we look to Jesus? Because Jesus is on the throne. He stands ready to give us grace, forgiveness, and to say, yes, you are a man of God, and you will be a man of God.